Previously on Flying the Line, a new kind of boss starts to take over in the aviation industry. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. ALPA supports its pilots through a variety of resources, including free access to air medical doctors for eligible members. The Aviation Medical Advisory Service can answer your aviation-related medical questions free of charge, helping you stay certified and on the flight deck. Visit alpa.org resources for more information and where to call. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, a bridge from the book Flying the Line, Volume 2, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 10. Who are these guys? Frank Lorenzo and his kind, Part 2. To pilots who asked, what has ALPA done for me lately, in the late 1970s, no better answer existed than the lobbying campaign against the Mutual Aid Pact. Every airline pilot everywhere, whether represented by ALPA or not, stood to suffer from the MAP. If each of these pilot groups, standing alone, sent MEC chairs to lobby against the MAP as unaffiliated local union leaders, the effort probably would have gotten nowhere. Every pilot flying the line today should always remember Dave Benke's argument, first advanced in 1931, that unionization was the only way to get their voice heard. During the 1960s, ALPA's professional lobbying staff suffered from Charlie Ruby's disdain for politicians. J.J. O'Donnell began to rebuild ALPA's lobbying capability in his first term by hiring a new legislative affairs director. His name was Robert Gartland, a former member of Congress who everybody referred to as the judge. Gartland was to use his extensive personal contacts with politicians to open doors for O'Donnell, who intended to do most of the lobbying himself. In 1975, largely because Gartland had proven inept at running the anti-MAP campaign, O'Donnell eased him out in favor of Bob Bonadotti. Bonatati had worked as a congressional liaison for the Office of Management and Budget in the Nixon and Ford administrations. He was a former Republican presidential aide who had a healthy disdain for what he called amateur pilot lobbyists. He moved quickly, under no illusions that if he didn't show results on the MAP issue, he would suffer the same fate as Judge Gartland. As ALPA's legislative affairs director, Bonatati began his MAP strategy by establishing close contacts with several Democratic representatives and senators who chaired key committees. It was a slow process, requiring a good deal of personal attention by O'Donnell, fundraising dinners, helpful letters during political campaigns, and so on. O'Donnell was good at ingratiating himself with politicians, as even his strongest critics conceded. But lobbying was a skill that could not, by the very nature of politics, spring to maturity. In politics, nothing happens overnight. Northwest's heavy MAP use in the bitter three-month strike of 1972 had alerted O'Donnell and ALPA's national officers to its dangers. At the time, 
Alpha's lobbying capability was still not fully developed. When Frank Lorenzo plunged TXI's pilots into crisis in 1975, it was obvious that the MAP was potentially very dangerous to Alpa. Until Lorenzo came on the scene, the MAP insurance policy was probably worth its premiums, but Lorenzo's blatant exploitation of it caused many airline managers to rethink the value of this insurance policy as he extracted an estimated $10 million from it. Lorenzo used it to defeat his employees, ensure other carriers would not profit, and to do actual competitive harm. Alpa certainly helped Lorenzo's fellow owners arrive at this decision. All during the ALEA strike, O'Donnell lobbied furiously against the MAP in Congress. While the strike was in progress, O'Donnell persuaded 58 members of Congress to co-sponsor a bill to outlaw the MAP. Although most airline pilots at the time were probably Republicans, O'Donnell ironically struggled to find a few Republicans to sign on. Eventually, he persuaded two Republican senators to join six Democrats to co-sponsor ALPA's anti-MAP bill. Lining up two Republican Senate sponsors was no small feat, as the evolution of their party into an intensely anti-labor posture was almost complete by the mid-1970s. In 1989, proof of the Republicans' anti-labor position became clear. When both houses of Congress passed legislation requiring a presidential emergency board to resolve Lorenzo's last anti-labor efforts at Eastern, George Bush vetoed it. His fellow Republicans in Congress sustained the veto, thus dooming Eastern's pilots. Whether Frank Lorenzo actually helped destroy the MAP by providing a textbook case of how to abuse it remains unclear. Certainly, he used it to his own advantage during the ALEA strike. After winning the strike, he would undercut his competition because of the MAP cash reserves he had on hand. Lorenzo began offering peanut fares, which were unprofitable even with a full plane load. Nevertheless, it forced other airlines into a series of ruinous price wars, spreading throughout the industry with devastating effect during the early 1980s. Management used this destructive fare-cutting rationale to pressure pilots and other unionized employees into contract givebacks. So the widening ripples in the airline industry's troubled pond began with Frank Lorenzo's war against ALEA. Had the MAP not existed, he could not have caused such turmoil. Consequently, when airline deregulation finally killed the MAP in 1978, few responsible airline managers shed tears for it. The ALEA strike of 1974 to 1975 was ALPA's first exposure to Lorenzo's multifaceted approach to breaking a strike. It would not be the last. It left TXI's pilots angry, shell-shocked, and wary. Whether he knew what he was doing or not, Lorenzo was on his way. In the late 1970s, Pan American inadvertently gave him a boost. Pan Am needed regional domestic partner airlines to funnel passengers into its international route system. Before deregulation, 
The only way for Pan Am to get into the domestic market was to buy its way in. Not realizing Lorenzo's ruthlessness, Pan Am President Bill Sewell made an agreement with him to feed his Latin American roots out of Houston. Meanwhile, Sewell was trying to buy National Airlines. Ted Baker had built National from one inconsequential little airmail route linking St. Petersburg and Daytona Beach into a mainline carrier. Following the airmail crisis of 1934, Eastern's Eddie Rickenbacker had failed to bid on the route. Baker grabbed it, expanded National to Miami, and eventually provided stiff competition up and down the eastern seaboard. In 1962, Baker sold National to Bud Maytag, who had formerly owned Frontier. Maytag proved an inept manager, and National went through a series of revolving door managements into the 1970s. Rumors about its demise through merger swirled, the most often mentioned partner being Pan Am. Because of Lorenzo's working relationship with Pan Am, he observed this process with great interest. In 1978, he quietly launched a program to purchase national stock. As Pan Am's merger with National approached, it helped drive the price up. In 1979, Lorenzo cleared $40 million from this market operation, which was really little more than corporate greenmail. Lorenzo now had the money to put some really ambitious expansion plans into operation. These financial resources, plus his aggressive anti-unionism, won the respect of some important Wall Street operators and brought more investment capital his way. By the late 1970s, Lorenzo had attracted the attention of Michael Milken, a financial felon who would later earn a 10-year federal prison sentence. He saw Lorenzo as an ideal investment vehicle and would ultimately make more than $1 billion available to finance Lorenzo's expansion plans. But these plans did not include TXI's Alpha pilots. Lorenzo launched New York Air in December 1980, operating through Texas Air Corporation, the holding company that also owned TXI. A wholly non-union subsidiary, it would enter direct competition with Eastern's dominant shuttle service. He literally took TXI DC-9s off the line, repainted them with an Apple logo on the tail, New York City is, of course, the Big Apple, and began operating them with non-union crews trained at TXI school in Houston. The little man from New York City, by way of the Harvard Business School and TXI, now stood a good chance of becoming deregulation's first non-union major player, at the expense of both Eastern and ALPA. New York Air really got ALPA's attention. It illustrated clearly what everyone already knew, that Lorenzo was a one-trick pony. He knew nothing about the airline business, and he really didn't care about it. His only strategy was to squeeze labor hard, exploit his employees' vulnerabilities, and generate cash. This allowed him to pay off the crushing burden of debt he accumulated in acquiring his properties. Lorenzo was smart, tough, ruthless, and extremely ambitious. His victory over TXI employees only motivated him to totally get rid of his unions, 
to Alpha, New York Air, using the call sign Apple, was rotten to the core. Before deregulation, Lorenzo had to hold the full scope of his anti-union plans in check. Although it was approaching sunset in the dying days of the Carter administration, the Civil Aeronautics Board still had some powers, particularly over international carriers like TXI. With the election of Ronald Reagan in November 1980, Lorenzo expected no interference from ALPA's traditional government allies. It was no accident that Lorenzo set his startup date for New York Air one month after Reagan's election. Politically, ALPA was now on its own. Following the ALEA strike, TXI's pilots signed a contract that guaranteed labor peace until after deregulation. Once deregulation became a reality, Lorenzo began pressuring his pilots for a series of structural changes in their contract. At first, the TXI pilots had no inkling of what Lorenzo had in store. When they entered contract negotiations in 1979, Lorenzo's intentions were still unclear. Then, they immediately realized that Lorenzo was stonewalling them. Negotiations began with the pilots extremely wary of Lorenzo because of deteriorated working conditions. Just as he had with the ticket agents, Lorenzo would negotiate, but he would never agree to anything. Skirting the edge of the law to get a contract negotiated, the TXI pilots tried a program that the United Pilots would later call woe, withdrawal of enthusiasm. This tactic involved working to the book and availing themselves of every reason to take sick leave. They did what they could, short of getting themselves fired, to express their displeasure with Lorenzo. The last thing TXI's pilots wanted, however, was another strike. By early 1981, with the emergence of New York Air, ALPA as a national organization focused its attention on the threat Lorenzo's management style presented. Many ALPA pilot groups believed that the TXI pilots hadn't put up enough of a fight against Lorenzo. They believed that they should have struck him immediately for scope clause violations when he launched New York Air. But the TXI pilots had fought. They had done everything they could, short of striking. Their resistance to Lorenzo before, during, and after the New York Air alter ego airline affair eventually landed them in court. Lorenzo was adept at filing lawsuits against his enemies. He frequently used the Racketeer-Influenced Corrupt Organizations, or RICO statute, which was originally intended to combat the Mafia. Following a three-day pilot sick-in in February 1980, largely over changes in scope, Lorenzo promptly served Dennis Higgins, the TXI MEC chair, with a cease-and-desist order. He also sent teams of nurses around to all the sick pilots' homes to check on their illness. When Lorenzo's lawsuit claiming an illegal sick-in finally came to court in 1981, Alpa got lucky. By chance, the federal judge assigned to the case turned out to be a Jimmy Carter appointee who had a labor law background. Alba was found guilty, 
but the judge gave Lorenzo no legal fees or damages and said both parties should get back to negotiating. In the final throes of the 1980 contract negotiations, TXI's pilots fought Lorenzo's demand for changes in their scope clause down to the wire. Just as Lorenzo had done during the 1974 ALEA negotiations that led to the strike, he played cat and mouse with his pilots. Under National Mediation Board guidance, the talks moved to Oklahoma City, a neutral site. Lorenzo's negotiating team boarded a Texas International DC-9 at Dallas. When he realized who was aboard, the captain refused to take off. Finally, these Oklahoma City negotiations of February 1980 produced a contract. Or so everyone thought. When the pilot negotiators went back to Houston for the official signing and ceremony, management pushed a new proposal across the table. They wanted to remove language from the contract that had to do with successors. The TXI pilots absolutely refused to reopen negotiations but Lorenzo was undeterred. Through legal maneuvers orchestrated by a newly hired consultant, Lorenzo moved ahead with his plans to launch New York Air, in clear defiance of the TXI successor clause language. The consultant, Phil Bakes, had until recently been an assistant to Professor Alfred Kahn, the master of deregulation. Bakes, after leaving the Civil Aeronautics Board in 1977, signed on with the committee that approved the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978. Bakes knew more about the inner workings of the new law and the possibilities it offered to Lorenzo than anyone else. He would use this knowledge to help bring New York Air into the world as he artfully dodged TXI's scope language. The TXI MEC chair had done about all he could do, he acted as a missionary to the rest of ALPA, warning pilots far and wide that Lorenzo was a formidable foe and a danger to all of them. The pilots of Continental were about to pay. Next time on Flying the Line, Lorenzo grabs Continental. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 10, Part 2 of Flying the Line 2 by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 2000. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. Production copyright ALPA 2023, all rights reserved.